Amen. Let's, let's pray together as we come to God's word. Lord, make our thoughts and our meditations of our hearts pleasing to you. Guide us by your spirit to understand your words here and write them upon our hearts so that we might praise you in all your glory. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, good evening. It's great to be with you this evening. Before we get into the passage, let's just remind ourselves of the context of what we've been doing in Romans. So Romans has been written to, to a divided church where, where the Jewish Christians have been expelled. The Roman church has then developed under the Gentiles without their influence. And now the Jews have returned and there is this tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And so Paul writes to them to show them of their unity as the one people of God under the one gospel of God. And so far in the argument, we have seen how Paul showed them that they are all actually united in their immense need of salvation, how they are united as being sinners. Then he speaks against the Jewish faction that, that thought that they could earn their own righteousness by fulfilling the law and showing them how righteousness comes through faith alone. And then, as, as Christoph teased out for us last week, receiving that righteousness and being united with Christ gives us a grace that is bigger than all our sin and that through Jesus, we have life. So really, so far in the book, Paul has been showing us how we are justified, how we are saved, how we were made right with God. And then we come here to chapter 6. And here, you'll notice that Paul shifts gear slightly to pose a couple of questions in order to, to move his argument forwards. So previously, he has shown us that through union with Christ, we can be confident of receiving eternal life. But now these questions help us to think about what that means for our lives in the present. So, so here's the overarching question. You can write that at the top of your journals. What does union with Christ mean? mean for our present lives? What does union with Christ mean for us here and now? That's what we're going to be looking at this evening, so, so let's, let's get right into it. In chapter 5, Paul stated that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And in verse 1 here, he outlines the problem. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, just quickly, in your journals, make note of that, that that phrase, shall we go on sinning, is probably better thought of as remaining in sin. So it's, the question is, shall we remain in sin? So we are thinking not just of the specific act of, of individual sins, but a continuation in a life that came before. So we might have a life of, of greed. And at every step of our lives, we have greed, greed, greed. And then we meet Christ. So the idea of remaining in sin is that pattern of greed just continues on. More greed, greed, greed. There's no branching off, no, no change of life. Before I became a Christian, I, I always wondered at those people who, who claimed to be a Christian but were still out drinking with me at the weekend. Their lives look, look just like mine. And so when Jesus called me, I, I, I quit drinking just to look different, just to mark that something had changed 
in my life. Now, there's nothing wrong with drinking in, in moderation, but I just needed there to be something different in my life. I couldn't let it appear that I was just remaining in the pattern of my old behaviors. And that change when we come to Christ, like that doesn't mean that we just stop all sinning, that we never have any specific instances of sin again. But the idea that we are getting here is that there should be a change in the pattern of our lives. To you, that might seem an obvious response, but in the context of Paul's argument here, it's really important. The Romans have heard that, that God does everything to justify sinners, that they can be considered righteous in God's sight regardless of what their circumstances look like. And part of that argument was speaking against the Jewish Christians who were saying that the Gentiles had to follow certain parts of the law had to be circumcised, had to conform to, to certain outward moral standards so that they could be considered righteous. In short, that they had to contribute in some way to their salvation. And so up till now, I don't know about you, I, I can kind of imagine the Gentile Christians looking smugly across the pews at the Jews thinking that, that what Paul has just put said is just put them in their place. That all that tension about needing to conform to being Jewish had just been blown out of the water. And so, so they're the ones in the right. After all, how we live our lives doesn't matter, does it? Now that I'm a Christian, why, why would I need to change anything about my life? I'm in. I'm part of the kingdom. Just accept me as I am. Don't you think, do you think you have any right to make me change who I am? Now, isn't this just what the modern world tells us? Think what you like, but don't you dare let it affect your life. And so here's the problem spelled out for us. Secretly, we want to keep living as we used to before we met Christ. We have our fire insurance, and now we'd like to just continue to follow the pattern of this world because it suits us really well, and we are really comfortable living in it. We like the blessings. We'll take the stuff that adds value to our lives in some way. But that stuff that seems to, to challenge our own idols of success or, or value, well, that's not really for us. And we might not say it like this, but we'd really like it if we were just able to go on sinning and let grace abound. It's not quite planning for the deathbed confession, but, but if we're honest, it, it comes pretty close. In this chapter, Paul turns to his Gentile audience and says that just because you don't have to become Jewish doesn't mean that you don't have to change. And we should hear the same admonition to us that just because we don't have to become legalists doesn't mean that nothing is required of us. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The problem is that we want to keep on sinning. And if we feel that God sees us as righteous no matter what we do, then we can be tempted to remain in the patterns of this world. We can allow sin to have a practical dominion over us. For some of us, we can live like the doctrine of justification and union with Christ means nothing for our present lives. 
like being united to Christ is of no worldly importance. Now, if that's the problem that Paul set out for us, let's, let's look at his response. Verse 2, shall we remain in sin? And I should hear you all shout out, no! That, that by no means in the verse there, you'll read in the NIV, NIV it's, it's, isn't a gentle rejoinder. It's an emphatic no. There is no way that this is possible. Underline this in verse 2. We are those who have died to sin. There's something about us. Now that we are united to Christ, some quality that we possess that means that we are dead to sin. I'll let you into a secret. Did you know there was a time in my life that I possessed the ability to not breathe for ages? Months even without a single breath. And of course, we all have that quality, that ability, and, and then we were born. And now we no longer have that ability. Now there's a quality about us that requires us to breathe. And so Paul talks about Christians as those who have died to sin, as people who have fundamentally changed in some way. And how he does that is talk by talking about union and dominion. Now, this bit might seem a little bit conceptual, but but it's so crucial we get this to understand how we are to progress in the Christian life. So bear with me a little bit here. Firstly, if you've got your journals, circle all those times that Paul talks about being with Christ or united to him. Verse three, baptized into Christ. Verse four, buried with him. Verse five, united to him in death. And then again in resurrection. Verse six, crucified with him. Verse eight, if we died with Christ, we will also live with him. And the opposite of this, the opposite of union with Christ is being under the dominion of sin. Look again through our verses and this time you can draw a box or, or something around all those images of dominion that come up. Verse six, the body ruled by sin, slaves to sin. Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. You see in verse 14, sin is described as a master whom you are under sometimes we see sin like an addict sees a drug okay so they might think of a drug as something that they do when really it is their lord it controls them it has dominion over them and paul is showing us that that, that is what sin is like for us it molds us and it shapes us and directs our actions. But being united to Christ draws us to him. It associates us with him. And so as we join with him in baptism, as we go with him to the dead and are raised again with him into life with him, we partake in that same process whereby the human nature of Christ is freed from the power of sin. And Christ becomes our Lord. And so we have these two options, being united to Christ and so living under his lordship or being under the dominion of sin. No halfway stage. It's one or the other. In other places, scripture talks about it as, as coming from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. 
once we have moved over, it is as if our citizenship has been transferred and our old government has no ties on us any longer. We no longer have to follow their rules. We live in a new kingdom. Verses 1 to 4, 2 to 4 state this. And the verses 5 to 10 explain this. Look at that block. Can you see all the, the fours there? Verse 5 and 6 start with four to show us that they're explaining what has come before. It's not translated there in the NIV, but you can mark down that verse 8 and verse 10, they also start with the same word, four. And it's there for us in verse 9 too. So you might want to draw a box around that section. Keep that all together in your head. And within that explanation, we're going to look just at verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So here is where we need to be really clear to, to keep in step with the argument of what Paul's talking about. When Paul says that the old self was crucified and the body ruled by sin was done away with, he's not talking about our actual physical bodies. It's not something about our nature. It's not the case that being united with Christ somehow changes our biology and makes it impossible to be angry or to look at someone with lust. What Paul is saying has been crucified is the relationship that we had to Adam, to the one man that Christoph talked about last week. So chapter five talks about how we inherit Adam's sin and how being in Adam's line actually means that, that his sin is even imputed to us and that all humans have this, this connection with Adam. And in that line, we all fall under the dominion of sin. It is power over us all. Like the addict who doesn't want to act in a certain way, but is still drawn to it because they are under the power of their addiction. They feel powerless to, to resist. They have a relationship to the drug that orientates all their action. And so what Paul is saying is that that relationship has been crucified, put to death, severed, so the connection is no longer there. The phrase in verse 6, be done away with, could be translated something like rendered powerless. As if the, the addict wakes up one morning and, and he just has no cravings anymore. But that doesn't mean that we are not capable of acting like it is power over us. I know lots of ex-smokers who, who don't crave a cigarette anymore, but will say things like, oh, I miss it after a meal, or I miss the ritual of it. Even though the, the power has been broken there, there's still a pull. That might be helpful to remember. We, we, we have died to the power of sin, but not to the pull of sin. I tried to think of a good example to, to give you here, but but Martin Lowe-Jones is already, he, he's given the best one, so I'll just use his. Um, when you think of a country lane, okay? You, you can even draw one in your journals. And, and on each side of this lane, there are two walled enclosures with sheep in them. On one side, the shepherd is Satan. And the sheep listen to his voice. The walls are high. They have no 
escape, chance of escaping on their own. On the other side, the shepherd is Christ. And God in his grace reaches down and moves some of the sheep from Satan's pen into Christ's pen. And now so for those sheep, there has been a decisive change in their position. They have a new shepherd. They are no longer subject to what was going on in their old pen. They have an entirely new relationship to sin. They are not under its dominion. And yet they can still hear the voice of their old shepherd from across the road. So although they don't have to, out of habit, the sheep sometimes still follow the voice of their old shepherd. They're no longer under his power. He, he can't do anything to them while they're in Christ's pen. But they still feel his pull. And so if you're taking notes, here's the next step to put down. Dying to sin doesn't mean that we never sin or we just renounce sinning in some way. It means that now we have the ability to say no to sin. We are not under its dominion. Now, all this can seem clear from the text. All this makes sense in the text. And whilst you might accept this all theoretically, experientially, you might be asking, what does any of this have to do with my life now? Because if you're anything like me, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, I'm not under the power of sin anymore, but at times the pull of it seems so strong that I might as well be. I can accept that I'm in a new position with God, but, but that doesn't seem to be progressing me in this fight with sin. It just seems like for so, for, for so many Christians, we're always listening out for that voice from the other side of the road. So what are we to do? How are we to progress in our Christian life? How are we to move to the, to the far side of that sheep pen so we can't hear that hateful voice calling to us? How are we to listen more attentively to our new good shepherd? Well, verse 11 begins a paragraph that, that has our first imperative, our first command. Here begins the instructions. This is what we are to do. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. It begins with the story that we are telling ourselves. When you're struggling with sin, do, do you treat it like it's, it's no big deal? Just let grace abound. Do you tell yourselves a story where we are so against being legalistic that we think our lives don't need to be changed? Maybe you tell yourself a story of the addict that you just can't stop. You just can't change that pattern of life, so why would we even bother trying? Maybe that works itself out for you. Entirely miserable about it, but still clicking on that website. Maybe it works itself out for you, ignoring some nagging thought that you could be giving more or, or doing things differently with your finances and just happily buying that new thing instead. We constantly tell ourselves that it isn't really sinful, it doesn't really matter, or I don't have a choice. Our lips move, but it's the words of the enemy that come out. 
we identify with sin. And so we make it part of us. We give it dominion where it has no right. But telling ourselves the true story, that we are dead to sin, but alive to Christ, that we are no longer under the power of sin and can choose instead to listen to the voice of Christ and follow Christ and reflect Christ, then our decisions begin to look different because our identity is different. When you come to a decision, do I, look that, do I look at that or do I not? Do I spend my money this way or that way? Do I trust in God to take matter or take matters into my own hands? If the first thing that you tell yourself is that you are united to Christ and that as a follower of Christ, it is the love of Christ that compels you, then you will know that the lies of the enemy, the, the make-believe of our culture around us, do not have the power and the pull over you that they once did. Verse 12 says it like this. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey, obey its evil desires. Do not allow yourself to believe that you're under the power of sin. Do not give it authority that it does not have. You're not addicted anymore. You go back out of habit. Verse 13 clarifies this. We offer ourselves to sin. Do you hear that? We offer ourselves to sin. It's not rape. It's a seduction. We give in. We actively choose it. What are you choosing? Anger, lust, greed, pride, comparison, jealousy. If you're not sure, you can ask your spouse or your children, or better yet, you can check your bank account or your Instagram. There are any number of things that we daily just give ourselves to. But Paul says that counting yourself dead to sin, telling yourself that story that you're not under its power anymore, that you're united to Christ, means that you can choose differently. You can choose to offer that part of you to God and not to sin. But we are only going to do that. We are only going to progress in our Christian walk when we start to steep ourselves in these truths. When we form habitual processes of meditating on, upon God's word and his truth. No matter what I say, no one is going to grasp experientially what it means to be dead to sin after one sermon. It requires a reordering of our, of our minds, a, a commitment to sitting with this and let it, letting it seep into your bones. Whether you need to say it to yourself in the mirror every morning, whether you need to read these passages every day, whatever you need to do to bring this to bear on the story that you're telling yourselves, do it. Count yourselves alive in Christ. Let that be your story. You can underline this phrase in thir verse 13. Offer yourselves to God. Offer every part of yourself to him. Believing this truth allows us to, to 
offer our lives, our time, our talents, our resources to God for his purposes. How many people here are considering a career as a missionary? Now, how many people immediately thought that I was just speaking to the young people because they must be too old? Being a missionary isn't the only thing to do, but can you see how easy it is to just brush that off? How our culture, how everything we've been thinking about has conditioned us to think that that question is a bit extreme. Think it, but don't act. Don't let your faith affect how you live because surely that would be crazy, wouldn't it? But Paul writes to the Roman church and the Spirit speaks to us now, saying that since that we are united with Christ, since we see him as our Lord now, we are to act like it. We are to offer our lives in service. We are to reflect Christ's rule in our lives in every way that we can. So this week, make it your aim to count yourself as united to Christ. Be conscious of it. Let it form how you think. Wherever you are in your life, in your spiritual journey, the grace that God has given us doesn't leave us where we are. It takes us and it shapes us and it molds us. So if you're stuck, if your faith feels dry, consider for me what story you're telling yourself. Go read these verses again. Meditate upon them. Let them transform your identity. Don't call yourself a something Christian, whatever that is. See yourself as united to Christ. He is your primary identity. I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up now, but, but as they come, remember that question that I asked you at the start. How does being united with Christ affect our lives? And I pray that you see that it frees us from the dominion of sin. It builds our hope upon Christ. It allows us to rest upon him and his grace when things seem so out of control. It allows us to choose life, to reflect all that Christ has done for us. It allows us to serve, to have a purpose, to fight against the sin that is in our lives, to ignore the lies of the enemy and to listen to our good shepherd. To know that no matter how things look like here, we are not citizens of darkness. That Christ is our Lord. Being united to Christ gives us our identity. You might think of yourself as a sinner. Yes, we sin. But you are united to Christ. He is your Lord. So live like it. And as we respond in praise, ask yourself, who are you? Who is your Lord? And as we sing, if you, if you can respond to that question, sing out loudly that Christ is Lord, Lord of all your life. Let's stand and let's sing together.